Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth in the Old Testament. We're continuing our series, Lessons from Unlikely Heroes. Today we look at a Moabite widow by the name of Ruth. Last week we looked at Joseph, a lesson in perspective. Today it's Ruth, a lesson in loyalty. Next week we'll see Peter, a lesson in forgiveness. And then lastly in the New Testament, Lydia, a lesson in availability. Let me just set the stage here, the background of the book of Ruth that follows the book of Judges because that's the, the time period that this takes place. Uh, the time period of Judges was a time of turmoil, a time of rebellion and disobedience, and God's bringing judgment to his people. And I believe the book of Ruth is laid alongside the book of Judges, just like Lamentations is with Jeremiah, to say that in the midst of all that chaos and disobedience and distrust and disharmony, there is a God of grace and he's still at work and he's going to show it, demonstrate it in the book of Ruth. Just like to highlight verses 16 and 17 here in the first chapter because it sets the stage for really the mindset of loyalty. Ruth replied, do not persuade me to leave you or go back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May Yahweh punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. Now, if you've been to any of my uh, weddings that I've performed, you've heard me read that passage of Scripture. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Your God will be my God. And we talk about that special unity that you have loyalty between a husband and a wife. But the context of the passage, I often remind us of the the congregation, is this this book of Ruth. It's a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law and their description of their loyalty to one another. So let's begin by looking at several key truths of this passage that I just want to highlight today. First of all, we have important choices to make in the aftermath of a great loss. We, as the people of God, will have important choices that we're going to have to make in our response to a great loss. So I want us to read the entire section of Scripture, beginning in verse 1 now, to see what that loss was that this family had experienced. During the time of the judges, there's the context. There was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons left Judah, Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to live in the land of Moab for a while. That phrase is, in the original language, it's to be just a sojourn for a while. It's to be temporary. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they entered the land of Moab and settled there. It was supposed to be a while. They end up settling there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. And her two sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, the the second was named Ruth. And after they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Kelion also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. The story starts off with Elimelech and talking about the wife Naomi. Now you have the story centers on Naomi and it speaks of her husband and her sons now being gone. 
The story unfolds. There's a crisis. There's an incredible loss in this family. So speaking of Naomi, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to leave the land of Moab after this 10-year time or, or more because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. That's back in Bethlehem, back in Judah. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Let me just pause right there. Talk about loss. Talk about an incredible devastation that this family experienced. And now you have Naomi by herself, no husband. Her sons are gone, and she has these two daughters-in-law now. They're all alone with this incredible loss. We have a choice to make whenever we experience loss. How are we, as the people of God, going to respond to that loss? Gerald Sitzer, a professor at Whitsworth College in Spokane, Washington, tells a story. About 10 years ago, his minivan was struck by a drunk driver. And as he tells his story at that moment, three generations were lost in that wreck. He had his mother, his wife, and his small daughter, and they all died in that accident. Later, he wrote a book called Grace, A Grace Disguised. And this is what he writes. He says, I felt like I was staring at the stump of a huge tree that had just been cut down in my backyard. That stump, which sat all alone, kept reminding me of the beloved tree I had lost. I could think of nothing but that tree. And every time I looked out the window, all I could see was the stump. And Gerald goes on to say, when you look out the window of your life, and you only see a bare stump, you're experiencing the loss again. But he says that loss does not have to be the defining moment of your life. Instead, he says the defining moment of your life is your response to that loss. That's powerful words from someone who's been through that crisis, that loss. I think Naomi and Ruth find themselves there. There's this crisis, there's this loss, and how are we going to respond to that? We have important choices to make at that time. And our response hopefully will be the right response. We'll talk about that as we work through this passage. Second truth here. When there is a loss, our joy can be restored through loyal commitment to each other. Through a loyal commitment to one another as family, as the people of God. Look with me at verse 7. Let's look at verse 7 again and we'll read on. She left the place where they had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled back along the road leading to the land of Judah. They've made the decision. Here's what we're going to do. We've had this loss. We're devastated. We're without hope. We're going to take a step back and go back to the homeland now because we heard there's food. And she said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show faithful love to you and as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord enable each of you to find security in the house of your new husband. And she kissed them and wept loudly. No, they said to her, we will go with you to your people. Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go, go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? She's trying to paint this picture to say there's no way that, that we're going to be a family and you're going to have sons to be heirs. There's just no way. Just go back home to your family. No, my daughters, in verse 13 there, 
Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. That's her perspective. We'll talk about how she sees that in a moment. Again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. She, she bought it. I need to go back home. I need to stop this, this journey to Bethlehem, to Judah. I need to go back home to Moab. But Ruth clung to her. Boy, there's an important phrase there. But Ruth clung to her. It's like you have this picture of a toddler clinging to daddy's leg or to mama's leg. I, I'm going to stay with you. I'm not going. You can't shake me loose. I'm with you. Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God. By the way, those are pagan gods of the Moabites. Follow your sister-in-law. That's the context of this statement. But Ruth replied, don't persuade me to leave you or go back and not follow you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Ruth is saying, Naomi, where you go is where I'm going because you're my family now. Your people are going to be my people. The, the, the Israelites, the Jews are going to be my people now. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. You cannot find a more solid statement of loyalty than that right there. May Yahweh punish me. It's a, it's a vow that she makes. And do so severely. If anything but death should separate you and me. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped trying to persuade her. Talk about loyal commitment. Talk about nothing is going to get in the way, Ruth said, of me following you, of not only embracing you, but your God and your people. I want us to look at four descriptions of Ruth's uh, loyalty that I just uh, gleaned from this passage. First of all, Ruth rejected her pagan gods and embraced the true God. This is a description of her loyalty to God, refusing to go back. Her sister-in-law did, went back to the pagan gods of the Moabites. She refuses to do that. She rejects those pagan gods and embraces the true God. Secondly, Ruth recognizes God's hand and refuses to return to those pagan gods. Listen, here's what Ruth could have done. Ruth could have said, you know what? You follow the God of Israel, Naomi, and you said he's going to take care of you. I've watched your husband die. I've watched him take my husband. I've watched him take my sister-in-law's husband. I've watched you be left alone and hopeless. And I've also watched us not have any children to carry on the name. You want me to stay with you and follow your God? No thanks. But what does she say? She says, I'm going with you. Wherever you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. She recognized that God's in it. Even though in the circumstances she may not see what God's doing, she knows she can trust him. Thirdly, Ruth is remaining loyal to her new family. She has now said, just like the Bible says, that the man leaves father and mother and cleaves to his wife. There's this leaving of the Moabites and saying, I'm going to cleave to my new family. Even though her husband's gone, she's cleaving to Naomi, her mother-in-law. Remaining loyal to family. Listen, that's how we survive tragedy. That's how we survive loss. That's how we survive crisis. When it gets tough, family sticks together. Whether it's an a, a, a actual family or whether it's the family of God, when the crisis comes, we are to be loyal to one another. And she was. She says, I'm going to remain loyal to my new family. And then fourthly, Ruth is risking an unknown future by wanting to follow Naomi and her God. Ruth has no husband, no children, no hope, and now she's not going to have her Familiar surroundings of her Moabite people. She has, in her mind, this unknown future, and she risks it to be loyal to Naomi and Naomi's God. I was praying through 
just to remind us of some illustrations of loyalty in our lives. And the first thing that came to my mind was my dog. You know, when I, when I come home at night, the dog is there at the door. Or, and it doesn't matter what's going on during the day. He's always happy to see me. He's always wagging his tail. He doesn't remember that that morning I, I hollered at him. I made him go to his bed or whatever. He doesn't remember the day before. You know what the dog does? He just knows I'm his master and he's to be loyal to me. That's, that's loyalty, isn't it? Can we, can we do that? Can we say, I'm going to forget how you made me feel. I'm going to forget how you might have offended me. I'm going to forget how maybe you forgot about me, but you're my master, Lord. Can we say that to one another? I'm going to forget how you made me feel. I'm going to forget what you did. I'm going to forgive and I'm going to say, we're family. I will be loyal to you. That's what Ruth did. There's a church in Italy where a parishioner passed away. Before she died, her German shepherd would follow her to church. And when she passed away, the, the dog actually followed the casket out of the church to wherever they took the body. And the next day, the dog showed up at that church. It was a Roman Catholic church for mass because that's where the dog remembered its master. And for months, that German shepherd would show up every day at mass because that's where her master was. And the, the congregation just accepted the loyalty of the dog and let the dog sit there. There's pictures on the internet. The dog just sitting there at the front of the church because the dog was loyal to its master. The priest said, we're okay with that. If we could just teach the dog to tithe, everything would be even better. <laughs> Loyalty. I don't, I don't know that I ever would have said this, but can we not be just like our dogs? Just be loyal to one another. Ruth was. Some of you, that's all you heard today. You're going to go home and say, a pastor said to be like, like a dog, so I don't Number three, our joy can be restored by expressing our pain with honest language. We're going to look at how Naomi does this, and I believe it's a part of Naomi's healing process. She's not running from her pain. She takes her pain to Bethlehem with her. Look at, look at verse 19 in chapter 1. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem, and when they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Remember, it's been over 10 years. Can this be Naomi? Listen to what she says. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, as she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. Mara means bitterness. I went away full, speaking of her husband and sons, but the Lord has brought me back empty, why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has pronounced judgment on me and the Almighty has afflicted me? But don't miss this, verse 22. So Naomi came back from the land of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess, and they arrived in Bethlehem at the very beginning, at the beginning of barley harvest. See, no, Naomi is not running from her pain. Obviously, she gets to Bethlehem. She's got her pain with her, but she expresses it openly. She's taking a step. She's at that place where she realizes she's got to make a decision and act. And that's exactly what she does. She goes back to Bethlehem, back to the land of Judah. It's interesting. If you look back at verse 8, even though Naomi says, call me Mara because of my bitterness. If you look at verse 8, when she spoke to her, the, the girl, she said, may the Lord show faithful love to you as you've shown to the dead and to me. That's an incredible statement that Naomi is making. It speaks of God's covenant love. She, even in the midst of her bitterness and even in the midst of her crying out, God has done this to me, she still knows that God is faithful. She wants her daughters-in-law to be blessed by God's covenant love. She wants herself to be blessed by God's covenant love. 
You say, well, that isn't really, really a, good, a good Christ-like thing for her to be doing, to saying that she's bitter and God's made her empty. But you know what she's doing? She's just being honest. Go through your Bible and read about Moses. Read about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Much of what he said was, why me, Lord? What are you doing? What's happened? There's a whole book of lamentations about, about his weeping and wailing. There's, there's, there's this, this sense of the, the people of God were honest. Look at the story of Job. Look at the story of, of Ruth's ancestor, David, how he cries out to God. And read the Psalms. Sometimes I'll be reading through the Psalms and I'll go, I can't believe, God, you let them say that to you. I can't believe that's actually recorded in Scripture. You know what they are? They are the heart cry of the people of God to God, complaining to him about their bitterness and about their anguish and about their struggle. It's okay to do that. God can handle it. Did you know that? He knows your heart anyway. And Naomi is just expressing it. And I believe it's the the step of her moving toward healing with her perspective that God is still in the midst of this. So now let's look at number four which is, I believe, what happens here. Our pain is lessened when we share it with others. Our pain is lessened when we share it with others. Nobody liked the, the story the Filipino pastor told. He told about a man who was right, uh, had a horse-drawn cart, and he saw a man walking along the road carrying a heavy burden. And he stopped, and he asked the man, can I give you a ride? And the man said yes, and he got in the back of the cart, and they were going down the road, and the, the man looked back in the back of the cart, and there was that man sitting in his cart with his burden still on his back. <laughs> That's not a release of a burden, is it? He wanted to lay the burden down and get the ride. So let's don't do that. Let's don't just hang on to the burden. Let's be willing to give it away. Look at verse 17 in chapter 2. Our pain is lessened when we share it. So Naomi has shared her burden about how God has brought her empty. But then the Bible says in verse 17 of chapter 2, Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gathered. It was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain and went to the town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and then she brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. It's much more than she should have been gleaning as just a, a servant walking along gathering what was left over by the workers because God allowed them to leave her even more. Then her mother-in-law said to her, where did you gather barley today? And where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who has noticed you. Ruth told her mother-in-law about the men she had worked with and said, the the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, this man, the man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Or a kinsman redeemer, scripture, other translations call it. Here's what's happening. Naomi has shared her pain. Naomi said, this is, this is what I'm going through. But then God begins to work and she sees it. And as you read this passage of scripture, it's obvious that Naomi is seeing God's in this. God's at work. There's a blessing. The burden is being lessened because she shared it. And she sees God's hand, his providential hand in her circumstances of life. She puts two and two together. The field, the grain, the redeemer, the the family member, the relative. Look at chapter three, verse one through five. Naomi says, now God is putting all the pieces together. Here's what we need to do. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I find security for you so that you will be taken care of? 
Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Now, that, that kinsman redeemer, family redeemer, the, the, the prescription in Scripture was that uh, if, you, if there was a crisis in your family, a, relative, a close relative was to come in and rescue. And in this case, here is a, a woman without a, a husband, without children, and the, the redeemer is to come in and rescue the family by providing an heir. So that's, that's his role there. So she says this, um, Boaz is your relative. Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Now, here's the plan that Naomi begins to share with Ruth. Wash, put on perfumed oil, wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. Now, Naomi is trusting in God's hand in this. You take this step, and God's going to get in there, and he'll know what to do, and he'll say something. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. As Naomi shares her pain, and then she begins to watch and see the hand of God, there's this new perspective. We talked about a perspective that Joseph had through his life. Naomi's getting that. She's seeing that in her bitterness and in her brokenness and in her loss and in her emptiness, God is still up to something and her joy is being restored. The Bible says in Galatians 6 too, carry one another's burdens. In this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Carry one another's burdens. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. And can I say this? Our community also consists in what Christ allows to happen to us. Not just that God's redeemed us and saved us and forgiven us and given us a calling and a hope and a family, but God allows circumstances of our life to crush us and break us and hurt us, and that is what knits us together even more. I went back to a story this week of a Nebraska farmer who needed to move his barn about 150 feet away from where it was because a creek was rising. A massive barn, 17,000-pound barn. And so what they did is they just got a bunch of friends together, about 340 friends, and they rigged up a little a system where there was a handle for each guy, and each guy stood outside that barn, and on the count of three, I guess, they lifted the barn up, and they carried it like 100-something feet over and set it down on a new place. Men picking up that barn. Now, one of them couldn't do it. Ten of them couldn't do it. Twenty of them couldn't do it. But everybody ended up lifting about 50 pounds apiece and moved that barn. I thought, that's a picture of the church. That's a picture of the people of God saying, you know what? You've got a burden that's bigger than any of us could carry. It's maybe a burden bigger than a bunch of us could carry. But if all of us will come alongside, we can carry that burden. And our joy can be restored as we express our pain and we take up one another's burdens. It's a whole other sermon, but as we talked about the family of God, the people of God, and we looked at Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, when one part suffers, we all suffer. Uh, when we go through a crisis, we need to come alongside one another. The fifth lesson is we can learn much from tracing the hand of God. I, I, I wrestled with whether or not to include this because this looks at the whole book, but I thought it would be good to, to go back and see God's hands in the events of the book of Ruth, in the life of Ruth, the one loyal to Naomi, in the life of Naomi. Some have said, scholars have said, this should be called the book of Naomi, <laughs> because it's about her, her. But anyway, as we look at these events, I'm going to list four evidences of God's hand that we can trace. First of all, God's hand is present in the circumstances of life. 
God's hand is present in the circumstances of life. In chapter 1, verse 1, during the time of the judges, sets the context of a time of rebellion and disobedience. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. First circumstance, the disobedience of the people of God. The famine was a result of the judgment of God, and there's a brokenness among the people. Because of that famine, the Bible says that that man who lived in Bethlehem went to find food. The providence of God. If you look at chapter 1, verse 22, it says that they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. When Ruth and Naomi came back to Bethlehem, significant time, it's at the time of the barley harvest. Someone has said, God's grace knows no boundaries. It's incredible how he is at work here. The circumstances that God would allow Moabite women to be involved in his plan and purpose. That he would allow Ruth a Moabitess to be in the lineage of David, the king of Judah, the messianic lineage of Christ. God's grace. Trace God's hand in the circumstances of life. Listen to Romans chapter 8. We read this frequently. Verse 28 and 29. It's often misapplied and misquoted. We know that all things work together for the good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And he answers what that purpose is. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's desire for us is that we be conformed to the image of his son. He is trying to make us more like Jesus. And he will use all things to get that glory, to get that accomplished. In the case of Naomi and Ruth, he's using the loss of their husbands. He's using this this famine. He's using all of these things to bring his plan and purpose to fulfillment. God's hand is present in the circumstances of life. Secondly, God's hand is present in the seemingly chance events. And I use the word word seemingly chance to, to say that from the outside, just to look at it, it looks like it's just happenstance. But look at the reality of this. Look at me at verse 3 in chapter 2. Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the land belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. She happened to be. Isn't that great? That God would allow the writer of Scripture to write that way. It just so happens that the field that she's in is the field of one of our family members who has the responsibility to be the family redeemer if we're in a crisis, and we're in a crisis. It just so happens. Folks, nothing just so happens. God's hand is here. Trace his hand. You can see it. I love the, some of the stories we hear on the mission field. Wes Robbins sharing his testimony. One of our guys who had gone to Pattaya, Thailand, and he was serving over there distributing Bibles to the Chinese tourists. And he was out there on the pier with them, like many of us have done. We've taken several teams over there. And what, what we do is we stand holding these red copies of Scripture, and as the Chinese tourists come off of the, off the pier, off the boats, we hand them a copy of God's Word, and some take it, some don't. Sometimes you're, we're emptying box after box after box, and at the end of the night, we ask the missionary how to go, and they say, we gave away 300 Bibles or 500 Bibles, and, 
and we celebrate because for every Bible that went into China, we knew that at least 10 people would read it. So, man, it was just exciting. Well, the team from Virginia was there, and they hardly gave away any Bibles. Sometimes there aren't many tourists. Sometimes the police get in the way. Sometimes the tour guides won't let the tourists come to, to get the Bibles. So this team from Virginia only handed out a few, and they were feeling really discouraged. So they went back to the warehouse because that's what the, the plan was there with Southern Cross is you passed out Bibles and then you went to the warehouse and you began to assemble packets for the new Bibles for the next team. So they're back in the warehouse and they're sharing, man, I, we heard all these stories about God working and God's word going and people getting saved and people being led to Christ and, and nothing like that happened to us. But as they shared, they began to praise God that at least God was at work in others' lives. At least God had worked here and at least God, and it turned into a worship service. And, and the worship service was centered around, the, even though the circumstances were not that we got to give away Bibles, God is still faithful. Guess what happened? About that time, one of the guys says, hey, look. And he points out on the highway outside the warehouse, which is miles away from the pier. Hey, look, there's a Chinese tour bus broke down right outside of our office. So what did they do? They grabbed a box of Bibles. And they ran out there, and they passed out those Bibles. And, and Wes says, as soon as they got the last Bible passed out, they got the bus fixed, and it started up and took off. That bus just so happened to break down, huh, right? No way. Trace God's hand in those seemingly chance events. The third truth, God's hand is present in the daring schemes of people. I borrowed this phrase from another pastor. I wouldn't have called it a daring scheme, but I thought, you know, that really is a daring scheme, what Naomi came up with, to put Ruth at the feet of Boaz, to say when the day's over, he's going to be settling down. And when he's sleepy, you go up there and you just nudge up to him. You uncover his feet. And when he wakes up, you're going to be there. And she was trusting God to use that. In chapter 3, we just read that 1 through 5. I, I just want to uh, go on down to verse 8 with me, okay? In chapter 3, the Bible says she was laying there. Here's what happened in verse 8. At midnight, Boaz was startled. And he turned over. And there lying at his feet was a woman. Exclamation point in my, in my translation. So he asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your slave, she replied. Spread your cloak over me, for you are a family redeemer. Translation, you're the family redeemer. I'm a widow. I have no children. It's going to be your responsibility to marry me so that we can have a family. It's a proposal, <laughs> Talk about a risk. She's Moabite, he's Israelite. She's a woman, he's a man. By the way, nothing inappropriate happened here. The scripture's clear. She's younger, he's older. She's doing the proposing. But look at verse 10. Then he said, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, richer or poorer. Someone said that God put a guard over his heart and a guard over his lips. Most landowners would have said to a slave who picks up the leftovers in the field, you have no right to be here. But she says, I'm Ruth. I'm a member of your family. And God just, by his grace, gives Boaz this heart of passion and compassion for her. I'm not advocating that we scheme and plot and say, okay, God, you bless that. All right? That's what I'm, that's what I'm not saying because God's not in the business of doing that. Here's what I do want to say. Sometimes when we are trusting him 
He will get in the midst of our mess and make it work for his good and his glory. Aren't you glad? Now, don't be presumptuous. Don't say, God, I'm going to plan it. You have to bless it. That's wrong. But sometimes God just says, you know what, Kevin? Bless your heart. You know what that means, don't you? <laughs> bless your heart. You don't know what you're doing. Will you trust me? I'll, I'll fix this. Oh, I'm so thankful. Thirdly, I mean fourthly, God's hand is present in the processes that are in place. Boaz lets her know that he's not the next in line to be the family redeemer. There's another guy that has that privilege. The Bible says in chapter 4, verse 1, Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat there. And soon the family redeemer, the other guy in line, the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. And Boaz called him by name and he said, come over and here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. And they have this discussion and Boaz says, here's the deal, here's Ruth. Uh, here's her estate, the, whatever, nothing left. Here's the situation, and here's who I am. And, and he convinces him in verse 6. The Bible says the Redeemer, the other guy, says, replied, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. Here's what, here's what God does. He honors Boaz. Boaz says, you know what? I could jump on this thing and I could say, yeah, I'll move in and I'll rescue Ruth. But he said, I'm going I'm to go, I'm going to follow the process. There's a process in place, and when there's another redeemer, he gets first uh, opportunity to redeem. And God worked in his heart, too, so that Boaz could be the one who married Ruth, and they would have a son named Obed, who would be the grandfather of David, who would be the king of David, the picture of the Messiah, King David, the picture of the Messiah, the messianic line of Christ. God's hand is present. Acknowledge that. Wallace Hamilton was a preacher in the 1950s, and he used to tell a story about a mother cat in New York City that, that had a kitten in her mouth, and she was trying to cross busy traffic. And she'd try and go back and try, and cars would honk and go back and just back and forth. Finally, a New York City police officer stopped all the traffic, and the cat ran across and off down the alley. And this is what Wallace says about, or Hamilton says about that situation. He says, as the anxious cat scampered across the other side and disappeared down the alley, the cat had no idea that the authority of the New York City Police Department had been called upon to enable her to cross the street. And then he says this, I wonder how many times the mighty hand of God goes up to get us safely to where he wants us to be, and we're never even aware of it. I wonder, what is God up to? What is he up to? Let's trace his hand when we can, and let's trust his heart when we can't. Let's pray together.